And now, O Lord, by the kindness of your spirit, would you take simple human words and set them apart and give us your life-giving breath. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Well, today is Reformation Sunday, so I, I should say happy Reformation Sunday to you all. Um, I, I was going to make a Smurf joke about my gown, but my wife thought it was a bad idea, so I won't do that. Um, the Reformation is remembered primarily for its attempt to correct some problems that had arisen both theologically and pastorally in medieval Christianity. Medieval theologians tended to understand, and Christians as well, and uh, what was the mist in the and the pulpit became a fog in the pew, medieval theologians tended to understand grace as something that's infused in us, it's implanted in us. And then by an activity of self-fertilization or self-actualization, you water that grace so that it can grow in such a way that then in the end, it's then received as, uh, as redemptive. And Reformation thinkers who we celebrate today in, their, in memory resoundingly said no uh, to this conception of grace. Grace is given freely and totally by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The Protestants, we love the word alone. In, in fact, when my children ask me why I want to be alone, I tell them because I'm a Protestant. And can you close the door on the way out? So the reformers knew that the apostle Paul did not say, he who began a good work in you really hopes that you can bring it to completion. Rather, Paul said, he who began a good work in you will perform it completely and fully till the day of Jesus Christ. Martin Luther and John Calvin and Thomas Cranmer and Martin Bootser and Philip Melanchthon and a host of lesser known reformed figures like Johannes Oclampadius and Johannes Bugenhagen. I have a colleague who's named his dog that. All of these figures would hear Paul's clear message about grace through faith alone, and they would resoundingly and in chorus say, Amen. That's the gospel. That's the word of God that brings life. God spoke a word of creation in Genesis, and the world appeared. And God speaks the word of the gospel, and dead souls are brought to life. God says it, and it is. These are the big and enduring themes that Reformation thinkers have passed on to us, and we are grateful. I'm grateful. But what's often, left, often less rehearsed in this attendance to Reformation thinking and theology is um, the pastoral implications of all of these alone words. During the medieval period, a lot of attention was given to what they thought of as the art of dying. That was a term that they used. And um, within this particular time period, the art of dying was understood from the standpoint of how one makes an end determines how one's life is to be conceived. So for example, the ancient Greeks used to say, call no man happy until he is dead. And this kind of thought process went into the life of the church as well, so that there was a phrase that was tossed around, a person's salvation consists in their end, in their fina, end. And once again, Martin Luther and his entourage said no 
to this conception of the art of dying. A person's salvation for Luther does not consist in their end, fina. It consists in their faith, fida. So you see, Reformation thought also cared deeply and pastorally about the art of dying. What does it mean to make a good death? A good death is not made by veiling yourself in the final moment of the sacraments of the church. Eucharist, extreme unction, penance. Some sort of last-ditch effort to secure our, our eternal security. A good death is made in the same way a Christian is made a Christian. By faith alone. A good death is made by looking away from myself to the person and the work of Jesus and knowing irrevocably that my life and my end consists in that place. My salvation's there and nowhere else. So the art of dying for Reformation thought is crafted and it's shaped by an attendance to the gospel. One of my favorite etchings from this period is an illustration of John Calvin on his deathbed. It's not really an all that uplifting scene. He looks emaciated. He's wearing that medieval nightcap. And he's surrounded by people who are obviously saying something to him. But what's striking about this painting of Calvin's death is, is who and what is not there. Not a priest. There's no sacrament. No extreme unction. It's Calvin on his deathbed, surrounded by his friends who are reminding him that the truths of the gospel that sustain Calvin's life would also sustain him in his death. Our psalm for the morning, Psalm 126, is an art of dying kind of psalm. It's a psalm that prepares us very much in the vein of Reformation thought for making a good death. If you can look at it in your handout or your bulletin worship guide, the first three verses or four verses in your handout emote for us with poetic force the hilarious joy that comes from the restoring grace of God. You heard it read so well. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. When, when the full reality of God's restoring grace seized us, but when we had an inkling that our night had turned to morning, that our sorrow had now turned into joy, when we knew without any doubt that our existence is now marked by life and not by death, when we knew God's saving promises to be true and to be true for us, we were like those who were in a dream. The nations were stunned. The nations looked on in our dreamlike state and they said, the Lord has done great things for them. And I love this response. And the psalmist says, indeed, he has done great things for us and we are glad. Our heads are in the clouds. We're walking around in a dreamlike state. And please don't pinch us lest we awaken from this incredible dream. I like these verses. They're childlike in the best sense of the term. You know when children are excited what they do. You know, they throw off all social pretense. They jump around in acts of hilarity and joy. They, they break into song. Children don't care who's watching. Children are like King David who's dancing and gyrating and laughing before the Ark of the Covenant and his wife got really embarrassed. And why was he dancing? Because Isaac Watts was right. Let those refuse to sing who never knew our God. And we know the saving promises of God. 
we know that he hasn't left us in our misfortune. He hasn't left us to ourselves. And we're singing. We're joyful. It's like we're dreaming. But we all know the disappointment, don't we, of being rudely awakened from a dream. Children running in at the wrong moment. Oh, where was I? Leave the room. Maybe you're like me. You try to go back to sleep and say, now where were we? But unfortunately, the dream seems like it's over now. And the residue of memory only exacerbates the lost moment. The hilarity has worn off. The singing is now just a quarter pitch off. And what was once an experience filled with joy, marked by gladness and freedom, is now a deep cry from the torn heart. Restore our fortunes, O Lord. Do you sense the, the fissure and the tension in this psalm? You restored our fortunes, verse 1, and how glad we were. But now in verse 5, would you please restore our fortunes, O Lord? The waters from the stream and the desert have all dried up. What was once the joy of restoration, the coolness of a fresh spring has become the desperation of the current moment. And it's arid and it's dry. The streams in the southern desert have all dried up in the Negev. But if you look closely at this psalm, the psalmist is making for a good death. The psalmist is practicing the art of dying. This doesn't mean that the psalmist has no misgivings or no fear or no anxiety about death. But despite these struggles, the psalmist is marked by gospel hope and assurance. You restored our fortunes, O Lord. We know you have. We know you've turned your face toward us in grace. We know that the smile of God beams forth to us in the ugliness of the cross. We know it. But we also know, Lord, where we live now. We know that our lives move between the extremes of hilarious joy to the nights of darkness and sorrow where our pillows are wetted by the tears. And the psalmist says, welcome to the Christian life. So this morning on Reformation Sunday, we collectively say together with the full force of faith, you restored our fortunes, Lord. We know the hope of the cross and the certainty of the resurrection. And equally and at the same time, we say, Lord, would you please restore our fortunes? Would you let the night of tears be brought into the morning of joy? Would you let the weeping turn again into singing. But in the meantime, as we're making for a good death, we're going to hold fast to all of those Reformation alone words. Grace alone, faith alone, and Christ alone. Amen.